Hello and welcome to the Alien Gazing Podcast. On this episode, both Tom and I are going to dive into the elusive, the mysterious, and the fascinating Majestic Documents. These are supposedly leaked government documents that include information about UFO crash retrievals, alien bodies, and the mysterious Majestic 12. But before we get into all that, I just want to get a quick little bit of house cleaning out of the way. Uh, This is technically episode 9, as we recorded this before our most recently posted episode, which was our Halloween special, episode 10. Uh, We go into a little bit why there was a delay in that episode, uh, but briefly, uh, between moving and working on my band's first album, uh, I just had a lot of stuff going on, so I just didn't get a chance to edit this episode as quickly as I liked, and by the time we got around to recording episode 10, I still hadn't had uh, this episode edited, and I wanted to get episode 10 out there by Halloween, so... Uh, that explains the delay. So here on out, we will be more consistent and we will also have the episodes in (laughs) proper chronological and release order. So with that all being said, guys, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode of the Alien Gazing Podcast. Welcome to the Alien Gazing Podcast. This is the podcast where we analyze and look at different bits of ET and UFO information while checking out some cool shoegaze music, also grunge gaze, uh, new gaze, all the different gazes, if you will. Um, And on this episode, if you're listening and you've been listening to this podcast for a little while, uh, you probably have noticed how much time has elapsed uh, since our last episode. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, Among them, I recently moved, so my entire studio setup had to move with me, Uh, and that took some time to get uh, reestablished, but also, um, back when I started this podcast, I I had no job because of the pandemic, partially, Um, and that has changed, so I've had a lot less time to work on scripts and stuff like that for the show. So, all that being said, uh, we've decided... Both Tom and my. By the way, Tom is here, and I totally did not introduce him. This is the second time I've done this. Tom, you are with us from the Alien Gazing Podcast. Hello. Hey, hi. <laughs> I'm here too. It's been a long time for me as well. I had to bury two of my sons. Oh no! And I had a hip replacement, but I'm here. Now, what's up, everybody? Um, <laughs> yeah. Good to be back. I'm I'm glad to be sitting here at the table with you again, Nick, and talk about ufology. <laughs> I'm still tr- practicing that word. I want to say ufology every time. But oh, I have, to, ufo- I have to remember ufology. Ufology. Yeah, it's almost like the ufology uh, uh, of oof. Like, oof, yeah, I made a mistake. Exactly. That's how. <laughs> that's how I have to think of it when I say it. We're really not helping the skeptics out right now. <laughs> um but anyways yes so tom and i uh we wanted to get back together to uh do more stuff with the podcast but uh we were kind of talking about it and we thought maybe instead of trying to uh go to the nth degree of doing a lot of research and a lot of prep and writing scripts and all that stuff maybe we would just try uh, a different approach and so this episode is very much us trying this different approach um the approach is being more off the cuff um, we both looked into the information that this podcast uh, will be discussing today, obviously, 
uh, but we're not trying to necessarily uh, corroborate exact pieces of information. So as we discuss the topics uh, on this episode, just be aware that uh, we are two flawed humans <laughs> who are doing our best to convey the information as the best as we possibly can. Um, but we may make mistakes here and there. Um, so just as we always say on the podcast, just ground your information with some uh, helpings of salt, but also do your own research just to make sure that you have got the right information and you don't start telling your parents about how um not your parents why would you talk to your parents well of course you would talk to your parents why am i so i haven't spoken to my parents in years <laughs> not since <laughs> that one time not since that one time yeah i need to um correct you a little bit when Please. you say we have done a lot less research what's really happened is nick has <laughs> done a lot less research uh well i shouldn't say that you've done a lot less prep right and um i've actually read the material so that's the new <laughs> that's the new change is i have read thoroughly the documents you have as well but normally it was you know you had an amazing script thought of thought put into the show and then um i would he be here and just watch it in all its glory and try to find fun things to say i like this format that we're trying um a lot more because it it makes it a lot less uh, scripted yeah <laughs> yeah and that that was another thing too is that um in listening to some of those previous episodes i kept having the thought that um i would like this to feel more um more relaxed and more uh two people hanging out talking about the topic versus mm -hmm. um versus like because i mean uh we also had another segment called ufos in the news i think for the time being i'm just going to go ahead and scrap that uh mm -hmm. just to kind of again keep it focused keep it based on like a singular thing um, cause also, uh, it, it, part of the reason it would take me so long to do these episodes is cause I would spend so much time in editing cause I was always trying to make sure that like, um, anytime we, uh, we skipped up some pieces of information or if like one thing was too far away from the other thing, I just would blend them together and it, it took forever. <laughs> yeah. So I think, so I think having it be more of a relaxed thing where we just, or just it's a general conversation, it means that when I listen through it's like maybe i'll just focus on like little audio things mm -hmm. to work on to edit mm -hmm. out but other than that just kind of pretty much being a little bit more uncut right um yeah the only problem with that is is uh you're gonna have to cut out a lot of stuff that i say that i don't like like my last monologue that i already went over <laughs> <laughs> i'm like ah what was i doing i was rambling oh no that see but that's the thing though i think that in fact, I think I like the idea of just kind of letting us just like ramble a little bit here and there. Just let let the flow of the conversation be real. But anyway, all that is to say that this episode we're going to be uh, discussing uh, a topic uh, which is the majestic documents. Um, and essentially, uh, if you want any more information about the majestic documents, um, I would point you to um, the researcher Ryan Wood. Uh, Ryan and Robert Wood, they are a father and son uh, dynamic duo, if you will, and they have tons and tons of information on the internet. Uh, you can find them. I'm going to look up their website right now. I wish I could look up UFOs with my dad. Actually, I do. I'm kind of surprised I'm saying that. Do, wait, do you, do you and your dad have like a, a UFO? Uh, do you guys talk yeah. about that stuff? Yeah, it's weird. In, in fact, I think he was the first person to talk to me about the subject with any sort of like seriousness. That's really interesting. My, my dad, 
my dad has flip-flopped constantly mm -hmm. on the UFO issue. When I was younger, he was, I think he was on the flop, um, mm -hmm. or he was flipping. I don't know. If you're flipping and you're flopping, I guess you're just not. Mm -hmm. You're non-stopping. <laughs> you're, <just laughs> you're flipping, you're flopping, you're non-stopping. Um, but yeah, when, it, when I was younger, he was definitely not as into it. And then he actually saw a UFO. Mm. And that, and it was funny. He saw a UFO appear above our house, my my childhood home, like literally a month after I moved away to college. Wow! So, so me personally, when that happened, yeah. I was like, "Shit!" <laughs> yeah, they did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just majesticdocuments.com. Okay. Cool. So, uh, so going back, <laughs> if you uh, if you are interested in uh, learning more about the majestic documents, if you are interested in looking into the research. Uh, that attempts to authenticate uh, the Majestic Documents, go to themajesticdocuments.com. Uh, that is a website run by Ryan and Robert Wood. Uh, they are a father-son team, and they have done uh, extensive research, mostly in the 90s, um, but it is still there for you to peruse at your, uh, at your leisure, if you will. So anyway, so we were going to be covering uh, these documents, and it's important to note exactly what these documents are. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the forward of this uh, of this collection because this is pretty much a collection of documents, including the famous uh, Special Operations Manual, otherwise known as Psalm 101, um, as well as some other ones. So I'm going to read this real quick introduction so you have some context. It says, from 1992 to 1996, a man by the name of Timothy Cooper received documents in his P.O. box from a person claiming to be Thomas Cantwell. Cantwheel, sorry. Don Berliner received an undeveloped roll of Tri-X film in his mailbox in March 1994, which contained the Special Operations Manual, Psalm 101. In 1984, Bill Moore and Jamie Shandera received the Eisenhower briefing document in the same fashion as Don Berliner, that being undeveloped Tri-X film. In an attempt to authenticate all these documents, Bob Wood has met with all the recipients. Bob and his partner and son, Ryan, are devoted have excuse me, have devoted significant energy to authenticate them, and one of the techniques often used is to replicate the documents. This, for example, um, identifies spelling and grammatical errors easily with electronic checkers. Also, it improves the readability and reinforces the content. So um, this book, it says, this book does not contain any authentication data. It merely lets the reader be exposed for the first time to this remarkable series of 15 documents that tell a story of extraterrestrial hardware, discovery, and concealment over the years by the United States military and government officials. I'm just going to go ahead and stop the introduction there. There's more there, but it's more talking about stuff that's more relevant if you were actually reading uh, the thing. So, so there you have it. What we are going to be discussing today is a what is referred to as the Majestic Documents, which includes 15 different documents that tell the story of uh, supposedly extraterrestrials landing here and having crashed here and the U.S.'s involvement in interacting with them from that point. And strap in, because this is part one at 15, <laughs> starting page one. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so love, uh, that's that's a good point. Let's. Uh, so how we're going to be talking about this, because if we wanted to do this the way that we would normally do it on the podcast, we would be doing 
hours and hours of research, none of which we're going to be paid for. So, so, in rather, so rather than try to do that, uh, we wanted to just go ahead and talk about the document in general, what some of our thoughts are, as well as look at some of the specific documents and try to parse out some information there and then kind of end with some of our thoughts at the very end. And we need to do this because you currently may actually by the time you're listening, you might be lucky like Nick was, but you cannot buy this collection of documents, at least not on Amazon, right? Yes, that's a very good point. Yes, if you go to that website that I mentioned before, MajesticDocuments.com, uh, they do have a link where you can buy a copy of the Majestic Documents uh, from Amazon. But unfortunately, for the past, I don't know, every time I check uh, in the past year or so, they're not there. In fact, the copy that I have, uh, this was back in 2020, I was actually excuse me, thinking about the podcast, thinking about creating the podcast. And I was like, man, I got to get my hands on the Majestic documents. That'd be a fun episode to do. And I just happened to look on on the website, which I had looked on many times before, always to see that they there was none available and they happened to have one copy. And that's the copy that we have here. <laughs> it's me, Nick, from 2020. <laughs> You're going to do the majestic documents finally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love your old man voice. This is, Thanks. This is, this is a really cool development. I, I'm looking, I hope I sound like that when I'm like 80. Would you say that character is 80? Oh, he's got to be at least 100. He's 100? Okay, cool. cool he can cool. barely get the words he, out. He's Every... seen some shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every syllable is a, is a, a feat of it's strength. A, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> <laughs> It's because of how much time he's been here. The sands of time have have inched themselves into places they shouldn't. I'm I sorry. everyone I love die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Sad old man. <laughs> um, but yeah, so essentially, um, in terms of uh, checking these documents out, let's go ahead and just start with some of our general thoughts. Um, so let me just give us some context. I bought, I bought this back in 2020 and I read half of it for the first six months or the, in the first six months that I had it. And then I read the rest of it kind of relatively recently, uh, maybe like a half, six or seven months ago. Um, and then I gave Tom a copy, uh, to, so Tom actually got to read it more recently. Um, so I'm more interested in hearing your thoughts really quickly uh, since you just finished reading it. So, Tom, um, what are some of your general thoughts on the Majestic documents? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I had to collect my brain off the floor after, you know, reading some of them because <laughs> my mind was just absolutely blown. And what I really liked about the Majestic documents is kind of, you know, what what we read earlier and, you know, how we have this background on it. Um, so there's a lot there to kind of help the legitimacy, but you know, what I read before this collection was the Psalm 101 manual. Right. And I had a lot of reservations about it and, um, a lot of my reservations were cleared from reading these documents. After I read these 15 documents, the Psalm 101 manual just seemed to make a lot more sense and I felt um, like it was a lot more trustworthy that what I was looking at was legit, top secret, leaked government documents about UFOs. 
Yeah, and it's uh, you mentioned the Psalm 101. So just for context, for anybody who's not in the know, Psalm 101 is essentially a leaked document that supposedly is a special operations manual, so literally a manual, on how to deal with uh, in with any kind of instance where you would interact with an extraterrestrial. And it's not necessarily like, you know, how you shake hands with one necessarily. It's more about how to approach um, crashes and how to deal with the the craft itself, uh, the wreckage, uh, the bo- potential bodies that may or may not be there, even includes information about different types of what they refer to as EBEs, extraterrestrial biological entities. So that's what Psalm 101 essentially is. It's a manual for how to deal with these UFO crashes, retrievals, and kind of like it, it also details the U.S.'s policy of deny, deny, deny. Right. Um, so that's what Psalm 101 is. So that so this made you, this document, or sorry, reading the Majestic documents helped you to see that as legitimate. Yeah, and what's great about it is, you know, one of my reservations, like you just mentioned about the um, special operations manual, is that it covers everything. It's like what to, how to package them. It even explains, right. you know, if you recover a craft, this is how you package it up uh, before you send it off. But it includes literally everything. So when I'm reading it, I'm like, geez, shouldn't this be like more compartmentalized? Isn't there a packaging team that's separate from the oh, <laughs> you know yeah, initial recovering yeah. team? Why is this all within one manual? But the good thing about the Majestic documents is they're in a chronological order that kind of explains, you know, okay, at this point, now what we need is at least some sort of special operations manual to know what to do from the future. And like I said, it gave a lot of more credence, I think, to the the special operations manual because I kind of that's what the majestic documents do is kind of give you a backstory leading up to why that was created and that's a really good point yeah because the 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 great thing about these documents the the documents are laid out in the time in which they were released in other words uh, documents that were released earlier are earlier and later ones are in chronological order so to speak so it kind of allows you to see the step-by-step of how all the things occurred as they did um so yeah so for me, when I read them, the thing that I think came across to me was it really helped me contextualize when all this stuff was happening. Because it's not, whenever you think about UFOs and uh, specifically Roswell, because that that let's let's just get it off right uh, right off the bat. Right, that we're is, talking about the chronological order of it. Well, the beginning is the you know most infamous. Is Roswell, right, right. Then that's kind of what what initiates a lot of this stuff. What the cool thing that I love about this is that, you know, like I was saying, it contextualizes when this is all happening. It's all happened during the Cold War. This is after World War II. This is like, you know, tensions with, you know, what's how the world is changing after World War II. You can feel it. It's it's a very thick fog and that you can feel as you're reading it. And for me, it was a, a very big heaviness that you know, I mentioned earlier that I had to stop reading at one point, and it was because of that heaviness. It was just, it was very, the way that they're speaking about things in these documents is also very like the way that people in power would be speaking about places and uh, places and things as if they are pieces on a chessboard that you have control over. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And that, and that, that really like weighs on me, just knowing that, you know, there are people out there who are innocently going about their lives, not having any awareness that, you know, uh, the, what their experience of life is, is essentially, to some extent, tailored 
you know, mm-hmm. and it's people up here at the top that uh, writing these documents at this point in time who are dictating whether or not the rest of the public is able to have, you know, access to this level of information. And it's it's very heavy. It's very yeah. heavy, you know. Yeah, I think it's hard not to argue that um, a big influence, probably probably the biggest influence on the way Roswell went down was the Cold War. Um, there's some other things that play into it, but I feel like, like you mentioned this fog of the cold war, it's like, it's this, everything about the event, um, had the cold war asterisk around it, which that was in the back of everyone's mind with every decision, with what they were saying. Even, even to the extent of how, how, how far they went to compartmentalize the information. Mm -hmm. So going back a little bit. Because, because uh, again, we're talking about some things that are in these documents, and we're not giving you all the context necessarily. So let me kind of go back to talking about this this document more in general. Because one of the things that gets brought up about this document is whether it is authentic. But here's the thing: authentic. I say with an asterisk because if you do the research yourself, what you uh, often might find is that. There's no question that these documents are legitimate in the sense that they are real. They are real pieces of paper that have real typed words on them. But the the question is, and the, that often comes up with Majestic, is was this part of a disinformation campaign? And so oftentimes people kind of like find themselves on one camp or the other, whether this information is all truly legit, like it was taken from the 1950s or 19 and 1960s, et cetera, and so forth. And it is actual leaked documents or are, is there some real information and some fake information purposely put together to throw off UFO uh, researchers? So, you know, People find themselves on all sides of that spectrum. Personally, I think that I lean more towards them being absolutely legitimate. We can kind of go into that in a little bit, but I wanted to get your thoughts, Tom, Mm -hmm. on how you felt about that. Do you feel like they could be faked documents, like they're uh, doctored so that they appear real, or do you think that they are the real thing? Yeah, I think that they're legitimate. Um the thing about the documents is, you know, there's always um, a possibility for them being, you know, completely made up. But there's some other details that we haven't gotten to yet that give a lot of weight on the scale towards these are legitimate. So let's let's maybe talk about a couple of those things. So I know one of the things for me, for example, the special operations manual. So that, as we mentioned before, that uh, manual was delivered to Timothy Cooper, right? It was Timothy Cooper or was it Timothy Good? There's two Timothys here. Timothy Cooper is the one who got the one in the 90s. Okay, cool. So Timothy Cooper received the Psalm 101 in March 7th, 1994, right? So... It's interesting to to note that what he received was a undeveloped 35 millimeter Tri-X film that was manufactured in 1954. So let me state that again. It was a pictures that had each page of the special operations manual and those pictures were taken in 1954. So you look at the fact that the pictures of these were taken in 1954. Okay, why were they taken in 1954? How do we know they were taken in 1954? 
it was has to do with the role of film that it was on. So it's taken in 1954. Why? Right. In other words, it's very likely that these photos themselves were taking or were taken in the 50s, which means if this was faked, someone typed this up in 1950 and then held on to these photos until the 1990s to send them out somewhere. Right. Right. And what are the odds of that? I mean, that that's almost more preposterous than, you know, than them being real. <laughs> right. At that point. It's a very long con. Exactly. Yeah. They're really playing the long game, right? <laughs> yeah. The other thing, too, is that um, there have been there have been studies on these and I haven't I haven't gone through every single study of it. But one of the studies that I looked into uh, talked about the type of typewriters that these were typed on. There's a very specific way that uh, that letters look based off of a typewriter that you can use to figure out what type of typewriter it was typed on and that level of that level of an attempt to authenticate the information proved that the information that is that you know was pictured on these pages was typed on typewriters from the periods of time in which they were dated so like 1947 uh 1952 1954 like these these typewriters are legit old typewriters so if it is true that they are fake then that means that someone brought out those exact typewriters and typed all this stuff up just so they can pull the wool over people's eyes or whatever vernacular you want to use for that <laughs> right so technically they could have an old box of film with an older camera in the 1990s but then they would have the task of typing up each document on a separate typewriter that okay. coincides with the date. It's a very elaborate ruse. And then if taking that's the plan. And then taking pictures of them. And then taking with, pictures. With the 1954 film. Right. Right. <laughs> so at, th at that point, it becomes like this very convoluted at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, because it seems like if you wanted to if you wanted to fake these documents, what could you have done instead? So one of the things that I've I've heard and I I, I don't know how much credence there is to this is that some of the signatures were pasted on. I've heard people say that about these documents, but a signature being pasted on, to me, when I think about that, I think about, okay, well, what about the rest of the document? The type of letters originate to a typewriter from like the 50s. So if someone just pasted, you know, uh, a signature in there, okay, maybe that was the attempt to make it look fake because that, that seems a lot easier. You take a real document and then you get an old document that has a president's signature, for example, and then you paste that into the document and do a bad job of it. Someone would look at it and be like, oh, no, that signature is pasted, but maybe it was pasted over the real thing. I don't know. That's just like a stupid pet theory that I have. I don't know how much legitimacy there is to it. No, you got a valid point there. It's much easier to you know, paste a signature on this document than it would be to spend the time and research and hours to type them up. Because again, you know, it's it's always possible that these could be a hoax. But um, like I said, there's a lot to kind of weigh the scale the other way, and one of them is the amount of detail in these documents. I mean, it's extensive, and it names names. It even provides <laughs> geographical coordinates. Yep. Um, that all corroborate with many other details about Roswell um, that are outside of the Majestic Twelve documents. Right, right. So let's 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 check out some of this stuff. Before we dive into all the nitty gritty, let's go ahead and feature our first song for tonight's episode. 
And for our first song, uh, this band actually hails all the way from Japan. The band is called Fake Lotus. The song is called Light Reflects Underwater.
That song was called Light Reflex Underwater. This is by the band Fake Lotus. And yeah, these guys are based out in Japan. Uh, And that song is off their January 2021 EP titled Drowning. And uh, I usually try to contact all the bands that we feature on the podcast. And sometimes they get back to me and sometimes they don't. It's all good. But I was able to get back um, some info from Fake Lotus. Uh, They wanted everyone to know that they're currently working on two new EPs. And they have a recent single that they released this past August titled Malice that you can check out. And you can find them on Spotify, Bandcamp, and Instagram. And you can also find them on YouTube. Uh, but if you want to follow them on Instagram, check out their handle. It's at Fake Lotus, Fake Lotus. That's Fake Lotus spelled the normal way twice. No, nothing in between. So yeah, super cool band, super cool track. I love the melody in it, and it's so infectious, and those fuzzy guitars, and also those clean guitars. They do a lot of clean guitar stuff in this one, too. So yeah, guys, Fake Lotus, check them out. They are a super cool band, and uh, yeah. All right, and with that, guys, let's get back to the show. Where we left off, Tom and I were about to dive into a specific document that dives into some specifics about the Roswell, New Mexico crash. So I'm going to read a couple of uh, bits of information from a document that is titled, um, it's dated July 22nd, 1947, and it's titled Counterintelligence Corps IPU Report. And it basically how it's uh, laid out is it has different uh, numbers, one, two, three, four, et cetera, and so forth. And it goes across, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six pages. And it's got 14 uh, essentially numbers that give us information that relates to the Roswell crash. So I'm just going to read a couple of these from the first page just to give you an idea of some of the information that we have here and the specifics that are within. So number one says the extraordinary recovery of fallen airborne objects in the state of New Mexico between July 4th and July 6th, 1947. This summary was prepared by Headquarters Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, Scientific and Technical Branch, Counterintelligence Directorate, as requested by AC of S, comma, G-2 at the express order of Chief of Staff. Number two, at 2332... MST, 3 July 47, radar stations in East Texas and White Sands Proving Ground, New Mexico, tracked two unidentified aircraft until both dropped off radar. Two crash sites have been located close to the WSPG. Not sure what that is. Uh, site LZ-1 was located at the at a ranch near Corona, approximately 75 miles northwest of the town of Roswell. Site LZ-2 was located approximately 20 miles southwest of the town of Socorro at latitude 33-40-31, longitude 106-28-29, with Oscura Peak being the geographical uh, geographic sorry, reference point. Number three, the AST personnel were mainly interested in LZ-2 as this site contained the majority of structural detail of the craft's airframe, propulsion, and navigation technology. The recovery of five bodies in damaged escape cylinder precluded an investigation at LZ-1. Number four, on arrival at LZ-2, personnel assessed the finds as not belonging to any aircraft, rocket, weapons, or balloon test that are normally conducted from surrounding bases. First reports indicated that the first crashed investigators from Roswell Air Force, uh, AAF, sorry, that LZ-1 was the remains of an AAF top-secret mogul balloon project 
When scientists from Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory arrived to inspect LZ2, it became apparent to all concerned that what had crashed in the desert was something out of this world. And again, there's 10 other data points on this stuff, but it gives you specific coordinates for these places. This is all very detailed information. Yeah, there's a lot um, that I've always wanted to know about Roswell, right? Like I've like most of us know the basic story that UFO crashed out there and then the government found it and then covered it up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there's more details I've always wanted to know. And right off the bat, just in that list you've read, there's a lot to, to unpack there. So there was actually so two crash sites for one. And this wasn't actually in Roswell. It was kind just, of, out, just out, kind of outside of it. Like Roswell's probably the closest it's, area yeah there's an air force base there right yes. so that's where they took it but socorro new mexico and um another location corona corona are actually where these crashes happen so that's kind of um exciting p- piece of information there first of all roswell is just not even where the crash actually occurred so i've been to roswell and they actually take people out to the crash site Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. It's kind of odd, but it's like, I think it's like a 30 minute drive outside yeah. of Roswell. So it's not truly in Roswell. And that's, you know, what this, these documents say is about like 30 miles, I think they said, yeah. which would take you about 30 minutes if you were driving 60 miles an hour or so. But yeah. And I, you mentioned um, WSPG. I think that's White Sands Proving Ground. Oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting tidbit about that. That's where the first atomic bombs were developed and tested. Yes. And and that's especially interesting considering the fact that we know that ETs, uh, and this is as per Lou Elizondo, you know, he's like the most legitimate person in the UFO field right now because he's talking about, uh, he's talking about stuff like this. And he's mentioned that, you know, yes, that's one of the places where we see ETs, or sorry, UFOs and UAP a lot is around nuclear test sites. Tons and tons of instances of UAP interacting with nuclear testing facilities, nuclear launch sites, and even stories of literally deactivating nuclear missiles mm-hmm. in midair. Right. So that's some homework for our listeners to go look into another time. But just another, you know, more credence, more leaning towards the scale of believing the documents, not only because of the other um, things we mentioned, but just the facts that we find within the documents themselves. Exactly. So we're talking about Roswell right now, but the first document in this collection is dated June 1947. doesn't give an exact date, but this is called the Oppenheimer-Einstein Draft and is written by Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer. And the title is Relationships with Inhabitants of Celestial Bodies. And this, again, is, is dated June 1947. And what's interesting about this is it's very much like Oppenheimer kind of playing with the idea of ETs being a real thing and that, you know, we may discover them or something. And it's it's interesting because this is right before Roswell. This is right before it. So the fact that it's included is rather fascinating. I do remember a detail that I wanted to talk about with just the incident of the Roswell crash itself. Yeah. And that's who showed up on the scene first because there was some conflicting information i think in some of the documents because as the documents progress they become more detailed 
And like some things in the earlier ones end up kind of changing as far as yes. the documents continue. Yes. And they become a little bit more detailed. And then like, you know, some things they, they contradict. contradict. But one of the things I read was that the crash was sighted on radar that I think Roswell Air Force Base saw two items collide on a radar screen and that parachuters were first to show up, that a plane from Roswell Air Force Base <laughs> flew over and then they parachuted down, saw what it was, and then radio in to come show up, which the story that I read a lot before that was a rancher saw it right. and reported it. Right. So, <laughs> so yeah. What's it, the right what's, story there? <laughs> what's the right story there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, if you think about it like this, if they saw that two crashed and they couldn't find one but they found the other maybe that could be right maybe that could be again i, I don't i don't know but that's where a lot of these are actually drafts of mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. that would eventually become official documents i think you're right i think one crash the rancher saw the other crash the government people got parachuted in yeah or something yeah yeah so it's important to note that all, some of these are drafts of, of official of what would eventually become like the uh the official document and there there's typos there's typos all over it but the thing is is that typewriters didn't have spell check mm -hmm. right so we would expect spelling errors especially in a draft and we would probably experience some little bits of what seems like contradicting information but the thing is is that like when you're trying to put together the facts of something you know sometimes you mix some or certain things up and then they get re-clarified later and stuff like that so right. especially when it's in draft form so i mean these are humans creating these things these aren't mm -hmm. these aren't created by aliens mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe um another detail to talk about would be like the escape pod that's something that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. So one of the things they mentioned is that the extraterrestrials are supposedly they were jettisoned uh, from the craft right. um, beforehand, before before the actual crash, and that's where the the beings were found. Right. So actually, you know, a, another part of the story that I forgot to mention of the basic understanding of Roswell is a saucer or a disc was recovered, but so were bodies or body. Well, these documents tell us that actually five bodies were recovered, and they weren't recovered from the disc itself. They were um, recovered from an escape pod that was actually a little bit away from the saucer. And not only that, but they weren't inside the pod itself. Some of them were, but others were out of the pod, and it seemed like they had started to make their way away from the crash site, but um, succumbed to their wounds before they could get very far yes and that was another bit that was uh that seems like it could be contradictory too um is that in if you ever if you ever if you've ever read the day after roswell there is talk about one entity that survived hmm. the crash so the fact that this says that they were all dead you know all i can all i can say is that any any instance you have of a of a of a for example, like something something chaotic, like a crash of some sort, right? You're going to have different accounts from different people's perspective. Um, but at the same time, if you're in the U.S. military and you're preparing a report that goes to the president and 
maybe you don't want the president to know or you don't want someone who's reading this to know that there was a live entity because that that's one claim that we do hear a lot in the ufo community was that there was one live extraterrestrial that that remained in u.s custody uh until that that extraterrestrial eventually died years later right so so there's nothing in here about about that specifically so so who knows? That's a good point. I didn't even realize that. There isn't really a mention of a surviving EBE, and you'd think that would be in there. But but knowing but knowing the compartmentalization of this information, you wonder, like, is that something that they didn't even want to have in writing? Right. Because that's another thing I, I think about with this stuff, too, is that all of this stuff is in writing, you know? So when you... What do they say about keeping a secret? You never write it down, Right. So the fact that all this is in, is in writing in general, it makes me wonder, like, is there stuff that's not in writing that is just meant to disappear? You know, because I'm sure, like, to some extent, they have to have this this information because, I mean, let's pause on this for a second, actually, and talk about Bob Lazar. One of the things that Bob Lazar mentions about his originally getting, you know, brought into Area 51 is that the the person who was his boss essentially gave sat him in a room at Area 51 had him read a bunch of documents about essentially the history of, you know, U.S.'s interactions with these UFOs, UAP, whatever you want to... I think UFO was a vernacular vernacular at the time. Um, But anyway, so that being said, it is important to have all this stuff in writing so that you can bring anybody who you want to be a part of this. You can get them up to speed much quicker because, I mean, anybody holding that information by themselves, I mean, we're not... So humans used to hold like entire novels in their in their brains but we're not at that level of consciousness anymore i don't think which i don't think we need to be but um so they do have to have this stuff written down so that they can read into somebody who needs to be part of the program but i have no doubt that there are definitely things that end up getting swept under the rug in the sense of like just not even being written down it's like no we don't want to write that that's just my personal speculation so. yeah I guess it also makes sense, too, that if you're dealing with a extra biological entity, that it could appear dead to you and you wouldn't know if it was or not because you've never really encountered that biology before. I so wonder, maybe yeah. it's possible that one of them just appeared dead but was actually alive and survived. I mean, who yeah. knows? Yeah, seriously. But one thing that, the, that Psalm 101 at least does detail is that there are multiple types of ebe's uh they have like a ebe type one and ebe type two and i'm just going to go ahead and uh look at that really quickly um and just read what the description of each one is so we have ebe type one these entities are humanoid and might be mistaken for human beings of the oriental race if seen from a distance they are bipedal five feet four inches in height and weight uh, about 80 to 100 pounds proportionally they are similar to humans although the cranium is somewhat larger and more rounded the skin is pale chalky yellow in color thick and slightly pebbled in appearance the eyes are small, wide-set, almond-shaped with brownish-black irises and very large pupils. The whites of the eyes are not like that of humans, but of a pale gray cast. The ears are small and set low in the skull. The nose is thin and long, and the mouth is wider than in humans, nearly lipless. There is no apparent facial hair and very little body hair, that being very fine and confined to the underarm and the groin area. The body is thin without apparent body fat. 
The, but the muscles are well developed. The hands are small with four long digits, but no opposable thumb. The outside digit is joined in a jointed in a manner as to be nearly opposable. And there is no webbing between the finger as in humans. Uh, the legs are slightly but noticeably bowed, and the feet are somewhat splayed and proportionally large. So that's EBE type 1. Would you like to read EBE type 2? Sure. EBE type 2. These entities are humanoid but differ from type 1 in many respects. They're bipedal between 3 feet 5 inches to 4 feet 2 inches in height, and when in weight they are 25 to 50 pounds. Proportionally, the head is much larger than the humans or type 1 EBEs, the cranium being much larger and elongated. The eyes are very large, slanted, and nearly wrap around the side of the skull. They are black with no white showing. <clears throat> there is no noticeable brow ridge, and the skull has a slight peak that runs over the crown. The nose consists of two small slits, which sit high above the slit-like mouth. They are no external ears the skin is a pale bluish color gray being somewhat darker on the back of the creature and is very smooth and fine celled there is no hair on either the face or the body and these creatures do not appear to be mammalian the arms are long in proportion to the legs and the hands have three long tapering fingers and a thumb which is nearly as long as the index finger the feet are small and narrow and four toes are joined together with a membrane. It is not definitely known where either type of creature originated, but it seems certain that they did not evolve on Earth. It is further evident, although not certain, that they may have originated on two different planets. So there you have it, folks. EBE type 1, EBE type 2, according to Psalm 101. And again, this is another bit that's like, so someone takes a picture of this thing in 1954 with that level of detailed information about about extraterrestrial biological entities. You know, I'm thinking I'd rather get abducted by EBE2. <laughs> that EBE1? Yeah, because something about EBE1 looking more human-like is I think creepier. Like yeah. if you're going to abduct me just look like a look like a alien which EBE2 sounds like your typical gray. Yes. You, I was going to say yeah. Yeah. But EBE1 sounds different and I've heard this description of extraterrestrials in other um abduction cases and stories of this yellowish skin and one yes. detail that really sticks out is the pebbly type texture. I've seen that detail in a lot of other descriptions um, from, you know, just your average Joe witness who might have seen something. So right. it's cool to see that detail in these government documents as well. That's the other thing, too, is how how this stuff is corroborated by people who have supposedly had abduction experiences. And we obviously have to do an episode on abduction as well. But, I'm itching for it. Oh, yeah. It's it's fat. Oh, God. Just like the thing with in general and one of the reasons why we've elected to kind of like go for more of a casual approach to this is because there's just so much information. If we wanted to cover even we could probably spend an entire episode just covering each one of these documents. But, um, so the EBE type one, that's the, that's the taller one, five and a half feet versus three and a half feet yes. or so. Um, yeah, that often in some of the abduction reports, you hear about these, the EBE type twos who are the, the smaller gray ones. And then you hear about the taller ones that look more human like often. 
and yeah, the, the skin is different. Yeah, it's more of like a yellowish thing. And the fact that they, they potentially originate from two different planets is fascinating too. You know, it's like already we're dealing with one ET race and we're dealing with two now and two different planets. You know, it's not like Asian person and uh, an Australian person. You know, it's not like the same planet. It's barely two different planets. What? Yeah, you know, and they say it's become clear that these, you know, did not evolve on Earth. And another interesting tidbit was that they said EB2, you know, did not appear mammalian. So EB1 does have body hair, it said, you know, very fine body hair on the armpit and groin, I think it said. Mm -hmm. And that it also had, you know, similar eyes and nose and mouth. They're you know, different shapes, but for the most part, you know, they have pupil and a, a white of the eyes or a gray of the eyes in this case. So it seems to be that you, you can go down a lot of interesting roads with that thought of these two different types of alien. Are they from the same planet and just of uh, the planet is so that you can have these, you know, very similar types of uh, creatures that are uh, evolving on the same planet, but they're totally two different species of like reptile and mammal. Right. Or are they from two different planets and they've joined forces or are they in competition or are they related somehow? Like immediately this all, all this stuff makes me think about, it makes me think about the, you know, the theories that potentially we were created by these extraterrestrials, you know? And I wonder if, if that is true, which again, I'm not saying that it is, but if it is true that they did do it, I wonder if these two different races, you know, mix themselves with Neanderthal DNA or whatever, and that's what essentially what we are. Again, that that's getting into like extreme speculation uh, stuff, but it gets me a little uh, intrigued, nonetheless. Yeah, you know, the good thing about these documents is that at some point they literally cover, you know almost everything you can think about in relation to the uh, disclosure of aliens and, and uh, UAP. So it doesn't matter. We could literally talk about anything and we can point it back to these documents. At some yeah, point. That, that, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you guys can get your hands on it and read it, I can't imagine, even if you don't believe it, that it wouldn't just uh, blow your mind out of the fun you know details of reading it because it's it covers so much it does yeah and as you're reading it you can't help but get this like giddy feeling of just like you're reading something that you're not supposed to read you know <laughs> like yeah. it's very it's very much as you read it you you do have this feeling of just like wow i'm getting really interesting tidbits here that i i think are really not meant for me to see <laughs> yeah you know you get that, that that's a real feeling i had as i read it um, I'm sure you probably felt the same way. Yeah. We're going to interrupt the podcast briefly to bring you the next song for tonight's episode. The band is called Lucy, and the song is called The New Comfort. <laughs>
that song was called The New Comfort by the band Lucy. And uh, these guys are based out in Bamberg, Germany. And that song is off their upcoming self-titled EP, which will be out December 9th, 2022. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, I couldn't find them on Spotify, but they are definitely on Bandcamp, and that is exactly where you can find their new EP that they're going to release. So uh, if you want to check them out, it's lucyisinmyheart.bandcamp.com. That's spelled all the normal ways. Um, and then if you want to follow them on Instagram, uh, it's just Lucy underscore band. And that's actually how I found them. And uh, yeah, that one's really, really good. It reminds me a little bit of this band called Proto Martyr, who's more of a kind of a post-punk thing. But I mean, I just love it. I just love the atmosphere. I love the kind of melancholic melodies and all the cool guitar stuff. <laughs> it just puts a smile on my face. Uh, although it tends to be sadder music, but you know, sometimes sad music makes us happy. Anyways. When we get back to the episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the Majestic 12. So let's get back to it. You know, when these documents explain the Roswell crash, um, they mention names. And the names are people who have the credentials to have been there at the time. Not only that, but they have the career background that would place them there at the time. And... These are real legitimate people that, you know, have also in some cases hinted at UFOs and this instance in their private lives and in other parts of their careers. Since you mentioned that, let's go ahead and give you all the names of all the people who are supposedly part of the Majestic 12 program. And let me let's just go ahead and um establish why this is named the Majestic Documents. It's because this these are the documents that include the Eisenhower briefing document dated 1952, November 18th. And in that document, um it says, quote, Operation Majestic 12 is a top secret research and development intelligence operation responsible directly and only to the President of the United States. Operations of the project are carried out under control of the Majestic 12 group, which has been established by the Special Classification Executive Order, sorry, Order Order of President Truman on 24 September 1947 upon recommendation by Dr. Vannevar Bush and Secretary James Forrestal. Uh, members of the Majestic 12 were designated as follows. Admiral Roscoe H. Hillencotter, Hillencoter? Dr. Vannevar Bush, uh, Secretary James V. Forrestal, General Nathan F. Twining, General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, Dr. Detlev Bronk, Dr. Jerome Hunsacker, Mr. Sidney W. Sowers, Mr. Gordon Gray, Dr. Donald Menzel, General Robert M. Montague, and Dr. Lloyd V. Berkner. The death of Secretary Forrestal on 22 May 1949 created a vacancy which remained unfilled until August 01, 1950, upon which date General Walter B. Smith was designated as a permanent replacement. So yeah, these are real people, including Dr. Vannevar Bush, who is, uh, wait, so Vannevar Bush is not related to, to, to the Bushes. Maybe. I don't think so, though. Okay, I'm going to look that up really quick. James Forrestal, too. He's someone yes. whose name comes up a lot in ufology because he, as a member of the Majestic 12, his face popped up a lot at um, future 
um, UFO incidents, although he died pretty shortly after, what did it say, 1949? So he died pretty shortly after the creation. Yes. Yeah, so he died uh, May 22nd, 1949. And yes, Dr. Vannevar Bush is not associated with like George Bush Sr. or any of those people, but he is known for having had a hand in the Manhattan Project. And um, that's another thing that connects some of these people as well is that their involvement with the Manhattan Project. Right, and it makes sense too when you think about it because... Uh, as we mentioned before, a lot of these sightings were near nuclear facilities, yes. uh, including this crash. Um, and so that was kind of like the height of technology at the time. Of course, that's why these guys were working on it. And so, of course, now we're running into something way beyond that. Let's get the smartest nerds we got over here to help <laughs> us make some sense of this. Yes, yes, 100%. And it's also interesting um, in the documents, just all throughout, they continually reference paperclip. And if for anybody who's not, um, who's not, who doesn't remember or is, has never heard of Operation Paperclip, Operation Paperclip was the CIA program that essentially brought over Nazi scientists from Nazi Germany to America to help put them into places where they could be of, uh, of value. But, but that was a real document. That was a real thing that did happen. And these documents do reference that multiple times. They mentioned that this, this one person was part of Paperclip or what have you. Um, so that's also interesting, the fact that it not only references people who were actually there and alive at the time, it also references other secret documents that were not never meant to be brought to the public. But nevertheless, if you were uh, aware of this stuff at the time, those would have been documents that you would also have been privy to, most likely. I wonder if they were seeing um, UFOs when they were working on the Manhattan Project. I know that, you know, that the Foo Fighters, I know that uh, people in the military were seeing ufos right that's something else that was uh mentioned in the end of the psalm manual right is that there were other crashes before roswell yes sightings before roswell so Jacques Vallée actually has a, a book that came out relatively recently that describes a crash that happened in 1945 hmm. and i think this one happened in arizona so yeah so roswell was not the beginning necessarily Technically, in, in human history, there's tons of events that were probably UFO sightings. And yeah. Have you, heard, have you heard of the uh, – there was one that happened in – I forget what state it was, but basically there was actually a extraterrestrial entity that was brought out of the craft. And this is before – this was like in the 1800s. I think I heard of that. Yeah, and he was actually buried and yeah. given rights by a priest. And mm. Yeah, and now if you go to that grave, it's unmarked, but – I mean, you take that with grains of salt, obviously, but the thing about the, this topic is that it is meant to stay secret. Obviously, we're getting some disclosure right now, but that disclosure is not coming very easy. This isn't the first time that we've tried to get more information out of the out of the UFO topic. You know, this is like, I don't know, inquiry number seven. You know, the, one of the first inquiries we have into this topic is with J. Allen Hynek and, and Blue Book. And then you see the these periods where people like talk you know jimmy carter talked about having seen a ufo and that was a big deal at the time yeah you know um i wanted to mention with the document we just read the introduction there it's a debrief basically it's a brief for eisenhower because he's stepping into the oval office and it mentioned that the majestic 12 was formed under truman you know, as a result of Roswell. So Truman, you know, is the first president to have a organization or group 
that is, you know, dedicated to this particular subject and phenomenon. And so he feels it's his responsibility. Obviously, this is a huge deal. Let me let the next guy in on it so he's he's aware. Right. Do you think they're still debriefing the presidents on UAP? I think that to some extent they have to be at this point, possibly, but like not, but like within limits. Mm-hmm. I have nothing really to, 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 to base that off of. That's just my own speculation. But I would say that I, I'm so fascinated by, I'm still fascinated really by the things that Haim Ashed, who was the head of the Israeli space agency, he talked about in his biography that he released a year or two ago. Uh, we covered on the podcast in one of our previous episodes, but he talked about how uh, there's an intergalactic federation out there and that Trump is aware of them. So I don't know. So that tells me that, again, speculating that that is true, that tells me that Trump was probably briefed to some extent. Uh, I've definitely seen many interviews with Obama where he's talked about, you know, UFOs and it, he always says, I can't tell you. There was that recent clip of him on James Corden's show um, with Reggie Watts. Right. That, that just was a couple months ago. I think. And we talked about it. Yeah. We talked about it on the podcast right, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So it, it always seems like he knows something. Yeah. You know, like it, it comes across that like, cause he, again, he says, I can't tell you. He doesn't say, I don't know. He says, I can't tell you. It makes you wonder what it is about this information that makes it so you can't say anything. I think there's a really great book, and I recommend anybody who's listening to this and you're interested in this stuff. It's called American Cosmic. It's by a woman named uh, Diana Pasulka. Okay, Pasulka, so- yeah. I only know it because I um, listened to her interview on uh, Lex Friedman's show. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, yeah. Curious. So, so yeah, so that book is fascinating. So just to give you an idea, so Diana Pasolka uh, is a uh, professor of religious studies. And so she went out to write a book about how the UFO phenomenon seems to be the blossoming of a new religion because of how, how spiritual uh, this topic tends to be for a lot of people who get really into it. And so she started out making, trying to make a book about that. And what ends up happening in the book is she meets this person who she does not give his actual name. Um, but this person that she is interacting with in this, throughout this book is someone who is, again, not named, but is within the tech industry. And what she reports about their interactions is that this person, person who she refers to in the book as Tyler. Um, he and other people like him in the technology industry, they believe that some of the best ideas that they've had have been downloads, what they refer to as downloads from these EBEs or from somewhere else. In addition to this, there's also uh, a group of people, scientists, people in the technology industry who are referred to, um, in the words of Jacques Vallée, as the invisible college, people who actively study this stuff in their spare time like they don't do it publicly they don't want people to be aware of the fact that they do it but they do indeed study it um and so the reason i mention all that because you this all stemmed off of your question of like why keep this stuff secret and after reading that book my speculation is that you know it's not just that ETs exist and that, that UFOs exist and we're not alone in this planet. I think it's also that we 
somehow, whether it was through some kind of agreement with these EBEs or whatever, or maybe we've just backwards engineered technology, but a lot of our developments in technology are potentially coming from these EBEs or from their technology or whatever. It's like, and if, if that got out, you know, it's it, it, it could be, I mean, think about the way people perceive something like uh, the vaccines, you know, for, for COVID. And I'm not trying to get political or anything like that. But my point is, is that like things that come out, especially nowadays, are very, you know, polarized. So you think about how something like a vaccine can be polarizing and you, then you amplify that to like that not only you know, that it's not about vaccines now, now it's about how all the technology that we currently have has all been backwards engineered from, you know, EBEs. And that that's a that's a mind fuck, for, especially for anybody who isn't already somewhat open minded. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people end up closing themselves off. Not, not to say that if you believe in EBEs, you're any better than someone who doesn't. But nevertheless, I think that that's one of the biggest barriers of entry for anybody getting into the into this stuff is just that. It just seems so far out there that for anybody to substantiate or legitimize that, you know, potentially our culture is essentially heavily influenced by these EBEs, it, it would freak people out. Right. Yeah, I I still, you know, speak with people who, you know, are skeptical. And um, at this point, it's kind of like I've heard other people say it's like, well, you if you're being skeptical at this point, you're kind of just refusing to accept the information that has been put out there, which is there are objects that are in our airspace that we cannot explain. I mean, that's the basics that we get right from the government. So you can accept that or you can say that they're lying, which I wouldn't blame you, but (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, it's not just them. It's people all over the world. And I think a big part of, um, you know, what we're seeing with the little pieces of disclosure is that it's becoming impossible to hide this stuff just with technology that we have now and, you know, the amount of cameras that people have in their hands. It's it's obvious that there's a phenomenon that is occurring. And, you know, whether or not you want to say it's uh, extraterrestrial or not, it's still a phenomenon that's not currently explainable right right and it's <laughs> right and uh, i mean i can explain it just fine but <laughs> but we don't have the degrees to where uh <laughs> someone would be like oh i want to listen to that guy right <laughs> um so yeah so we've talked we talked quite a bit about so a lot of the general stuff uh, one thing that we have not really mentioned in too much is the connection to jfk which i think is a very interesting one um, so yes. let's go ahead and see where we where we actually see this in these documents. So this is a part of what is described as the Cooper and Cantwheel documents. So these were the ones that were in 1992 to 96 to Tim Cooper from Tom Cantwell. Yes. Yeah. So there are two documents re- re- relating to John F. Kennedy. And uh, the first one is uh, dated June 28, 1961. The other one is dated 12 November 1963. And we know about 1963 because that's when John F. Kennedy eventually does get assassinated. So... No, uh, 22nd, I believe. Yes, November 22nd, 1963. Yeah. Yeah. So this would have been two weeks before? Yeah, just 10 days. Yeah. 
wild. So let's go ahead and check out those documents because that that stuff is just it is the last two documents in um in the book called the Majestic Documents. Um, this is titled Top Secret Memorandum for the Director of Counterintelligence Central Intelligence sorry Central Intelligence Agency Subject Classification Review of All UFO Intelligence Files Affecting National Security. Quote, as I had discussed with you previously, I have initiated, blacked out, and have instructed James Webb to develop a program with the Soviet Union in joint space and lunar exploration. It would be very helpful if you would have the high threat cases reviewed with the purpose of identification of bona fide as opposed to classified CIA and USAF sources. It is important that we make a clear distinction between the knowns and unknowns in the event uh, the Soviets tried to mistake our extended cooperation as a cover for intelligence gathering of their defense and space programs. When this data has been sorted out, I would like you to arrange a program of data sharing with NASA where unknowns are a factor. This will help NASA missions directors in their defense respons defensive responsibilities. I would like an instant report on the data review no later than February 1st, 1964. So in this draft, essentially, is Kennedy talking about how he wants to work with the Russians. And um, this is interesting to me, uh, not actually when I originally read it, but more recently because I watched a really great documentary uh, by Oliver Stone called JFK Revisited. And in that documentary, one of the things they talk about, many, many things dealing with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, of course, but one of the things they do mention is that John F. Kennedy actually was very much, he really did want to try and create, establish world peace. He really believed in that idea. Um, and he really actually wanted to work with the Russians to share information. And that was one of the things the CIA really didn't want him doing. They were very against that idea, and he was adamant about it. There we have it right here in, this, in these documents, a thing about JFK, how he wanted to work with the Russian space agencies and share information about what they knew. So you think perhaps maybe this effort to try to make peace with the Soviet Union over the Uf UAP phenomenon might have been thwarted by people who didn't want that to happen? I think that it was a combination of things, especially after watching the documentary. It's oh, it's amazing. But yeah, this is just another piece of information that just goes to show you that essentially who he was and exactly why that contrasts with the goals of the CIA. And right, you know, um, not to get on a total conspiracy tangent, but yeah. another thing with JFK, just on the um, notion of him being someone who had good intentions, you know, also denied, I want to say it was the CIA um, and their proposed Operation Northwoods and the yes. proposed false flag attack on Miami. And he said no to that as well. Um, and sounds like he just kept roadblocking a lot of CIA and their disgustingly evil <laughs> schemes. Yeah. And this was just another one that maybe was the last straw, seeing as it was 10 days before his unfortunate assassination. Yeah, it, it definitely adds to it, for sure. And it's interesting, um, the when you watch that documentary, by the way, there was apparently two other assassination attempts, one in Chicago, one in Tampa. And On JFK? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's, oh man, I'm telling you, you got, ew. 
all you out there, if you're interested in this <laughs> stuff, to, if you're interested in the JFK stuff, um, I came away from that feeling as if JFK's death marked the death of the America that we were taught about growing up. You know, uh, at that point, it becomes. It seems like that was the the establishment of like America really isn't run by the president anymore. Not yeah. that it ever was really run by the president, but you know what I mean. It's not just a combination of of the president and Congress. It's now this extra factor that is kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. All right. Going to give you another quick interruption for some more music. Heavy stuff, right? <laughs> well, let's go ahead and lighten the mood. This next song is called Deployer by the band Spirit System.
last song was called Deployer by the band Spirit System. And uh, they are based out in North Carolina. And actually, if you live in that state, uh, specifically if you near live near Greensboro, uh, they're going to be playing there on December 1st at the Flatiron. So yeah, December 1st at the Flatiron in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, definitely go check them out if you're in that area. And I have a little bit of information here from the band, too. Uh, they wanted to let you all know that they are currently in the middle of working on their next album. They're about five songs into the recording so far, and they're planning a regional tour for spring. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Uh, if you want to follow them on Instagram, you can just follow their band name, Spirit System, spelled as one word. And if you want to listen to their music on Spotify, Apple Music, all those places, it is all available there. And if you'd like to purchase music from the band, which I always recommend, uh, you can check out their Bandcamp page. So Spirit System on Bandcamp. They've got vinyl. They've got cassettes, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. Oh, you've also got a music video for that song, too, if you guys want to check that out. It's on YouTube. So just check out uh, Spirit System on YouTube. All right, and that's actually going to be the last song for tonight's episode. So I want to say a big thank you to all the bands who are featured on tonight's episode and ask that all the listeners out there check out these bands and support them. Uh, when we left off in the conversation, we were talking about the connections we have to the Kennedy assassination in the Majestic Documents. And so as we go and start winding down the conversation, we're going to find some last-minute connections we can make to other UFO incidents relating to burns and the effects that the fuel source from the UFO seems to have on people's physiology, if you, if you will. So it's really fascinating, and we hope you stick around to the end. So... With that, let's get back to the show. So as I mentioned before, you know, there's just tons of stuff um, in this document um, or these documents, you know, a lot of different details. And they kind of, you know, kind of show you a chronology of, you know, what was leading up after it became known to the government about, you know, extraterrestrials with the Roswell crash. So one report in particular that I found really interesting is this one titled, uh, first annual report, a review of the president's special panel to investigate the capture of unidentified planned form space vehicles by U.S. armed forces and agencies. And here we have the purpose of the document, which says the aforementioned panel under the direct presidential directive signed on the 26th of September 1947 has been tasked with the responsibility of providing answers to a most troublesome and disturbing phenomenon, that of otherworld visitation and what it portends for the human family. It is in this vein that the panel has addressed the problem and is providing possible answers. So really, it's kind of just hypothesizing the effect that this could have on a bunch of different things. In fact, the table of contents list um, the problems in relation to technology, nuclear weapons, biological warfare, genetic and pharmaceutical development, new materials development, uh, rocket uh, development, social and religious and scientific reaction. Uh, down here at the bottom, we have Cold War development, so it was fresh on their minds, even in 1947, um, when the Cold War is pretty much just starting. Right. And problems in relation to government policy of control and denial. So, anywho, it's a very extensive document as far as this list of 15 goes. But something that I just could not ignore was its mention of 
um, this interaction with the EBEs from the Roswell crash. And later on in the document, it kind of breaks down, um, you know, some of the effects of the team that interacted with them, and particularly in this part of the document noted Annex 8, um, Subject 8. It says, The panel was concerned over the contamination of several personnel upon coming in contact with debris near the power plant. And they're talking about the engine in the actual UFO that was recovered when they say power plant. I was going to say, that's what they mean when they say power plant. Exactly. Um, One technician was overcome and collapsed when he attempted the removal of a body. Another medical technician went into a coma four hours after placing a body in a rubber bag. All four were rushed to Los Alamos for observation. All four later died of seizures and profuse bleeding. All four were wearing protective suits when they came into contact with body fluids from the occupants. And reading that was just particularly jarring uh, for obvious reasons. But again, there's a lot of detail about Roswell that you otherwise wouldn't get from this. And um, according to this, apparently some of these personnel who helped recover the crash and body died from exposure. You know, and that makes me instantly think about two incidents. The um, the Cash Landrum incident, which um, have we talked, have you and I talked about this one before? I don't think so. So Cash Landrum incident is an incident that happened in the, if I'm not mistaken, the 70s or the 80s. And it involved, um, I think it was two women and their, uh, and one of the women's son or daughter. Anyway, so they're traveling, they're traveling, and I think they're traveling towards Texas. And basically what happens is they see this giant glowing diamond in the sky. And it's like, it's very, very, very bright. And there's black helicopters around it. And so they get out of their car to look at it. And because they they think that it's the second coming of Christ. Um, And so what ends up happening is they, all of them who walked outside got these extremely bad burns that uh, on the surface seems to be attributed to radiation, but doesn't exactly act like radiation poisoning. Um, This is the same kind of like thing we see at the Falcon Lake incident, which happened in Canada at Falcon Lake with uh, Stefan Mikulak, which our second episode uh, discussed. Um, And that one, same thing happened. This, uh, this man was prospecting, which in other words, he was just looking for gemstones and stuff like that uh, up in the mountains and by Falcon Lake in Canada. And he sees a UFO land. And so he walks over to the, the, the craft and tries to communicate with the beings inside the craft. And you know, they're, they're little, landing port is opened or whatever and he looks inside the craft and sees a bunch of lights and stuff like that but as soon as he tries to communicate with the creature the personnel (laughs) in the craft uh the craft closes its door and it takes off and as it takes off uh he gets hit with this uh this blast of air that comes from the ufo and he ends up getting like these horrible bar uh, burns on his body that are, are in the shape of the the exhaust from the ufo it's crazy you can look at you can look at these photos they're fascinating in fact Tom, i'm going to show you these right now um if you uh for anybody who is interested in seeing them this yourselves just look up stefan uh s-t-e-p-h-e-n michalak m-i-c-h-a-l-a-k and radiation burns and i think you should be able to find it. yeah look at this see that whoa yeah whoa <laughs> whoa <laughs> yeah 
Uh, so anyway, so it looks like Connect Four on his stomach. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. But yeah, so he was the uh, so he actually experienced the same thing as a Cash Landerman Landrum incident. He experienced uh, things that mimic radiation poisoning, but not exactly the same. He had like terrible like uh, vision issues. He had like terrible like uh, both stuff coming out one end and coming out the other end at the same time, like. A lot of really crazy stuff that he suffered for the rest of his life. It decreased as he got older, but it was still always there. And the scars, um, I forget if they they faded with time. But anyway, my point is, is that hearing about these these people who were trying to work with the, the Roswell crash, who most likely probably got really, really close to the power source, whatever it was, and then they and they ended up dying because of it. And that, that's what that makes me think about. It makes me think about these other people who have... S- been far away from the craft relatively speaking and suffered these type of crazy radiation radiation like burns and sickness and stuff like that so right yeah i have to mention the next item in the list which i didn't even read until a minute ago it says autopsies on the four personnel are not conclusive it is believed that the four may have suffered from some sort of toxin or highly contagious disease. Tissue samples are currently being kept at Fort Diedrich, Maryland. You think they still got those tissue samples? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, you watch the X-Files and you see uh, how there's like uh, the smoking man always goes to uh, not always, but in a couple of episodes, he goes to like this giant warehouse. It's just got all this ufo information like these little neat boxes or whatever like i'm sure something like that does exist yeah and you know this is after this is a couple years after the manhattan project and the bombing of japan like they know what radiation is right they don't say that here right in all the cases where like in cash landrum and in the stephan mikulak incident radiation seems like the most likely thing but it's not it doesn't act like radiation so it's something different Mm -hmm. um so yeah, yeah, you're you're right. They don't even mention anything about radiation there. They just say they're inconclusive. You know, yeah. similar effect, whatever it is. I mean, it's got to be. You know, if you're if you were standing near a nuclear reactor, right, you have that sort of effect. So this is you know the alien technology version of that. Probably way more powerful and more advanced. <laughs> right, and probably messing with things that we don't really are aware of. At least, especially not at that point in time. Yeah, you know, speaking of the technology, I don't think we've mentioned the fact that a lot of the technology that's described in these documents corroborates with other corroborates stories. Bob Lazar and various other stories, especially the 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 descriptions of the craft having no rivets yes. and that it being very smooth. That is something that you see. You see that in, in fact, you see that in Stefan Mikulak's case. He talks about how it had no rivets. This is back in like. Uh, when the Falcon Lake incident happened, I believe it happened in 1967. I could be wrong. Um, Falcon Lake UFO incident. Yeah, May 20th, 1967. So this is uh, that's 1967. This these documents predate that, right? Um, and obviously Stephen Micklock didn't have access to these. Uh, Bob Lazar talks about how smooth these crafts look. Mm-hmm. Right. So going back to whether or not these documents are fake or real, well, they're confirming information about UFOs that we know to be true, um, namely that they that they're that they're smooth or I shouldn't say that we know to be true, but most likely to be true is that they're very smooth or there are no rivets. And I guess my point is that if it is fake, they are including real information. 
So regardless of what anybody says about these, they're not 100% hoax. That's for sure. Right. Everything we covered earlier about the legitimacy of the documents with the photos and the typewriters, if that gives enough credence to say, okay, yeah, these pictures are from the 50s and 60s, which to me and you it does, then the other crazy thing is that, you know, people are describing the same information that is detailed in these documents well before they were actually released. Right. So again, yeah, there is truth in these documents. Um, so like you said, no matter what, there is definitely, you know, some, some true facts here that we can say are most likely legit. If there's even one piece of information in here that's legit. That means that it, whether or not it is legit in the sense that it was it's genuine documents that were leaked or it's uh, documents that were doctored, they come from the same source. <laughs> yeah. People who know what's going on. Exactly. And that's um, some of the best advice I've ever gotten from you and from Dr. Uh, Greer. Oh, it's Dr. Stephen Greer, yeah. Yeah, it is also in relation to this information about seamless technology. Like, when we say that there's no weld marks, like Nick said, there's no rivets, there's no wires. Um, it's all just, like, seamless one piece of technology. So that's how you can tell the difference of a legit uh, craft from out of this world versus um, the undeniable existence of human-made anti-gravity <sighs> craft now oh right right the tr3b and stuff like that mm -hmm. right right yeah because we, when we see those those seem like they've got parts to them right and you can see wiring and fuselages and things like that that brings me back to the story you were mentioning about the shiny diamond too yeah the cash landrum incident yeah didn't they see exhaust from that as well or, or something it was very bright and i think stuff was melting out of it yeah. Um, and I think Richard Doty actually, so for anybody who doesn't know who Richard Doty is, Richard Doty was an admitted disinformation person from the CIA who has come out and has talked about- Hate uh, him. Love him and hate him. Yeah, same. No, seriously. Um, was it Paul Benowitz who he kind of dr helped drive insane? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, why I mentioned Richard Doty, Richard Doty talks about, and there's a really great interview where he talks about the Cash Landrum incident and how he, he pretty much goes on the record and says that, like, yes, that was uh, a UFO that we were trying to manufacture um, that we were having problems with. And that's why the black helicopters were there and stuff. So as always, we say verify all this stuff yourself. Uh, we, both Tom and I, are both entrenched in looking at this information. And, you know, details can get can get fuzzy. Human memory is a weird thing. But um, that's what I remember about that, that incident and what Richard Doty has uh, said about it uh, since. Makes it really hard to trust him, you know? Yes, I agree. It's like, so your job is a disinformation artist. Or it was. Or, yeah, and you're retired now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is he, hmm. is he retired? Oh, <laughs> you know, I know. I don't know. Cause the stuff he says is like crazy <laughs> and I believe it, you know, like I'm sure he's saying the truth, but the other thing about Richard Doty too, is there's also things he won't tell you. Yes. He's secreted about some stuff. He is. He is. It's interesting what he will say, what he won't. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a, that's the other thing too, guys. The one of the cr craziest things about the UFO topic is just just how much information and disinformation there is out there, and you you gotta you gotta try to take grains of salt 
always, you know, but also like, you know, try to use your best wits about you. And I think that these documents are a great kind of resource, a kind of a, a litmus test for any person who wants to do legit uh, UFO research. Like, can you read these and see and suss out the real information from the quote unquote fake information? Is there fake information? You know, there have been studies done on this. In fact, um, this copy of Psalm 101 I have um, has in the back of it a lot of information about how they have tried to authenticate these documents. And at, like I said, on that that website, majesticdocuments.com, they do have all that information available as well. So that is all out there for anybody who wants to check out that information. In fact, not just this, but there's also troves of um, of declassified documents out there that people can look at. If you don't want to believe the majestic documents, look at some of the other documents, man, because it's it's big. It's big, and there's a lot of stuff about it. And the fact that there even exists a lot of stuff about it, it says it says that there's at the very least there's a lot to say about it. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, can you tell that we're <laughs> deeply <laughs> entrenched in the topic? It's hard to stay on just the majestic documents themselves, but it is. There's just so much within them that helps other stories that Nick and I have heard and it's hard to, you know, not connect the dots. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, cuz I guess we've kind of been kind of going all over the place a little bit. Yeah. Um but but you know what? Let's go so that that's the case. I I just looked it was about like an hour and a half. Yeah. Into it. So let's go ahead and start wrapping it up. So, um obviously at this point we we've, we've been talking about the majestic documents for a while. There's no real way to really go into this in a simple one episode podcast, you know. The amount of information in here is staggering. And the only real way to get the full experience is to read them yourselves and make your own decision. So with that being said, uh, we're going to go ahead and go to our final thoughts on the Majestic documents. Um, with that being said, uh, Tom, what are some of your final thoughts on the Majestic documents? Well, like I mentioned before, you know, the SAW manual, Special Operations Manual, I you know, was skeptical about that. And I wanted to say, you know, as someone who is very into the UFO phenomenon and very excited about the topic, I love reading and looking into stuff, I am always sure to, you know, really look at things critically. And, uh, you know, it's always funny when I'm following the various Instagrams that, uh, you know, show UFO videos. It's, kind of funny how many of them are obviously not ufos right and so my point with that is you know i read the psalm manual and i was like i don't really buy this you know and um once i read the majestic documents like i mentioned earlier it provided a lot more context so to me that's really telling about the documents themselves, um, just that as someone who's already prone to believe a lot of things just out of the sheer excitement and my passion for the subject, I still, you know, keep myself in check. And this was um, some more context that really kind of swayed me the other way. And I think if you're leaning, you know, on the subject and still kind of questioning what you think about it, um, I will probably end up suggesting these documents to people in the future more than probably any other source material that I can think of right now. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm a believer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? That goes doubly for me because uh, I had very much a uh, very similar experience having read them as well. 
I mean, to the point where, like, when I first started reading them, I had to put it down because the information was just so heavy. And yeah, uh, some of my final thoughts are, are are kind of like that. That definitely, I recommend everyone to check it out. But I will acknowledge for anybody who is sensitive out there, it is some heavy information. You're not just talking about you know, extraterrestrials and crashes, you're also talking about how people are choosing to divulge this information and it, within the context of a world that is becoming a very scary place at this point in time. And this is in this point in time being the early 1950s, late 1940s, uh, beginning of the Cold War era. So it's, it's very heavy in that sense. And that heaviness to me could also contributes to contextualizing when you know ufos became part of pop culture and why uh they were kept secret because i mean i think that had this happened you know if their cold war wasn't a factor i wonder how this information would have been uh, impacted in that sense because originally we have that the the paper from roswell saying that a ufo crashed there you know and then they eventually retracted it it's not it's it's neither here nor there but the fact that these documents exist at all and the fact that they do corroborate information that we have from other sources, it cannot be just written off. And that's the thing that I that really bums me out about these documents is that they're so often written off. So that being said, um, summing up my general thoughts, I believe that at the very least, if it's faked, it is faked by the people who supposedly created it. Um, but I tend to believe that they, this is legit um, and that any quote unquote false information in here is with a UFO phenomenon, you have to suss out the disinformation from the information. If I were to make a call, I would say that this is information, not disinformation. So yeah, that <laughs> if it's fake, it's really fun to read. Yeah, yeah, right. At the very least, it's just it's fun to read. Yeah. yeah. You will not be disappointed after reading it. Even as a total skeptic, it's just really fun to read. Yeah, it's fascinating. Honestly, if if you're a total skeptic and you're just you're just hunting for like that uh, some information to base a cool spy thriller on read this It's great research for that <laughs> yeah if nothing else totally if you want to actually like envision what the roswell crash was if you just want to look at that as a pure uh fiction story this is the most detailed report ever i mean i can't unsee the scene and everything in my head now it's it's the best description of that incident um i've ever read so uh even if you're just looking for something fun to pass the time pfft, keep clicking that refresh button on the Amazon page until it shows up and order your <laughs> yeah, <laughs> majestic and, documents. And also keep in mind that website, majesticdocuments.com, you can access uh, them online. Uh, so, so if you, even if you can't get a physical copy, you can still check them out online so that they are available. So, so yeah, so, so that is the majestic documents guys. If you would like for us to do a more in-depth episode on any aspect of these documents, shoot us an email saucersoverwashington at gmail.com. Um, additionally, if you are a, in a shoe gaze, uh, grunge gaze, new gaze, any kind of gaze bands, um, uh, and you would like to have your music featured on the podcast, please hit us up saucersoverwashington at gmail.com. And that'll about do us uh, for this episode episode tonight. Thanks guys. Stay spacey and keep gazing.